in the big idea, if you want to know where are we going, like what's the thesis, if you will, this morning, it's this, that being created in the image of God, it imputes, it impresses, it infuses upon us a distinct value and responsibility to all mankind, that there is something distinct about mankind that gives us both value and responsibility. I think this is an important question as we think about ultimately the goal is to to disciple others. This is equipping us to be able to come alongside others in that journey of discipleship. And it's that fundamental question that I think everybody asks of themselves, like, who am I? What What's my purpose? What's my identity? Why am I here? Is there purpose in, in my being here? Is there belonging in my being here? Psychology Today said this statement, the paradox is that the more you seek to solidify who you think you are, the more fragile you feel and become. This was an article. Now, I put it up here not because I agree with it. Okay, so this isn't like a slide to take a picture of and like put on a coffee cup. I think this is wrong. But I wanted us to see this for a very particular reason. I want us to see that the Christian worldview is fundamentally different than the world. But this this quote makes perfect sense from the perspective of the world, doesn't it? It's saying that the paradox is that the more you solidify, the the more you seek to solidify who you think you are, the more fragile you will feel and become. And is it any wonder when we're told as mankind that you were an accident of result of random processes that were never intended to be? That you are in an accident. So don't look too deep at who you are because all you will see is that that you were an accident, that, that we're told that, that self-esteem builds self-esteem from within, but you're an accident and you'll ultimately be judged by your actions and your accomplishments. Oh, but, but we're told to build the self-esteem. Don't look too deep because mankind is merely classified as a mammal, a primate, the same grouping of apes and gorillas and baboons, but, but don't worry, you're a special kind of monkey and, and, and whatever you can dream of and think yourself to be, you can be that. So don't look too close at who you are, at your identity. It makes sense why psychology today would say that it will only leave you feeling fragile What we're going to see today is a very different picture. It's a very different view of the world. It's a very different view of who we are. The Bible gives us a different perspective of reality altogether, a reality that is going to say that mankind has a distinct, unique value, a reality that gives mankind a purpose and a responsibility unlike the rest of creation. It is an an inherently unique Christian worldview that changes our fundamental understanding of who we are 
as people in relationship to God and his creation. So let's begin at that first verse that we were looking at today in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. What I want us to see at the beginning is the distinctiveness of man, that there is something unique that's happening here, and it starts, I kind of want to start from like a literary standpoint. What's happening in the text? What's happening in God's Word? Then God said, let us make man in our image. When there's a pattern that's been repeated again and again and again, and then that pattern changes, it's like taking a highlighter to that passage and all of a sudden illuminating and making it stand out. See, throughout this passage, it's been saying in the third person, in God said, in God saw, it's been third person, third person, third person, again and again and again. And now all of a sudden that perspective changes. Now it's moved into the first person. And now we're listening in and God said, let us make man. It's just this divine dialogue that's happening. The entire passage, the entire narrative has shifted. And something different is taking place. C- consider the, the, the verse that preceded it in verse 25. So God made the wildlife of the earth according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that crawl on the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And then verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image. Do you see the shift? Do you see how it's not just lumped in that mankind is just a primate like these other kinds? There is something different, distinct, unique that God has a purpose for in creation. And God calls this day not just good, but again, the pattern is broken. He calls it, it was very good indeed. It's meant to highlight, to distinguish the creation of mankind from the rest of creation. And then even when you continue verse 27, it goes into a song. It's the first poetry we have in the scriptures. Three lines, there's like four stressors in there. In the word created that was used in Genesis 1-1, that if you were here last week, that's only used of God, the creator, not just a craftsman of material, but the one who created everything out of nothing. A word that's exclusively used for God is now used three times to describe his creation of mankind. I want to emphasize this that there is something distinct, a distinct value and a distinct purpose that God has for mankind that is unlike the rest of creation. It is unique and it breaks out into a song with lyrics that, that are emphasizing this point. There is repetition in the whole focus point of the narrative shifts. It completely shifts. Now, think about this for a moment. In our community group, so we were talking about last week's passage as our community group, like I I hope you've grabbed one of these journals and 
you're reading the passage and you're meditating on it and you're working through the road Bible study method and journaling your thoughts, one of the things that got said in our community group last week was this statement. If you look at verse 16 and consider this was on day four, God, he created light and he separated light and darkness on day one. And then on day four, he created the sun and he created the moon. And then these five words, as well as the stars. And then it continues. Think of like the afterthought, comma, and all the stars. But what's that referring to? Like, I looked it up. There are 200 billion, with a B, galaxies. These are just estimates because there's so many, okay? 200 billion galaxies. In each of those galaxies, there are 100 billion to 200 trillion stars in each of the 200 billion galaxies. Oh, yeah, and as well as the stars. Are you tracking with me? Now, in one of the commentaries I read on Genesis by Kent Hughes, he said this, though you could travel a hundred times the, the speed of light, past countless yellow-orange stars to the, to the edge of the galaxy and swoop down to the fiery glow located a few hundred light years below the plane of the Milky Way. Though you could slow to examine the host of hot young stars luminous among gas and dust. Though you could observe close up the proto-stars poised to burst forth from their dusty cocoons. Though you could witness a star's birth in all your stellar journeys, you would never, never see anything equal to the birth and wonder of a human being. For a tiny baby girl or boy is the apex of God's creation. But the greatest, the greatest wonder of all is that that child is created in the image of God. The Imago Dei, the child once was not. And now, as a created soul, he or she is eternal. He or she will exist forever. When the stars of the universe fade away, that soul shall still live. Doesn't it make you just kind of sit down and be like, whoa, I I see my grandkids. Like, I remember the day my wife and I stood at the altar and said, I do, and our kids didn't exist. And now I hold a child, a grandchild, and to be aware of this, like this child is created in the image of God. It is an eternal soul. Stars will be born and die, and this soul will exist forever. There is an intentional literary and focal shift in Genesis, that I want us to feel that there is a distinct value to mankind that is critically important as we consider our identity and our purpose. Look at verse 27 again. 
So God created man in his image. He created them, him in the image of God. He created the male and female. This idea of in 27 that God created man is meaning there's both man as in Adam, the man, and then there's man as it means here, as in mankind. And we even see that clarified. He created them male and female. And then in 2.7, it says, then the Lord God formed the man. Now, the one thing that's important to keep in mind is the difference between chapter 1 and chapter 2. If you've read these, no doubt it's raised some questions. Like, these don't line up exactly. Like, what exactly is the timing? What's being emphasized? Why are there differences here? I think the clearest way to understand this is Genesis 1 is telling the historical narrative of creation. What we see then in chapter 2 is a focus on unique characteristics of God and his creation of mankind, of what that means for mankind to be image bearers of God. Because we read in in 2.7, then God, the Lord God, formed man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and the man, Adam, became a living being. It's giving us more detail as to what happened. It's giving us the story, but what it's also helping us see is look at the character of God that's being displayed. Because in chapter one, what do we see? God said, and it was so. Six times, if you remember, God said, and it was so. It's his power. It's his authority. It's his might. It's his sovereignty on clear display in creation. And now you have the creation of mankind. And God didn't just say, let there be man. There's an intimacy on display here. God was present in all aspects of creation. But there is a uniqueness to his presence and intimacy in how he created man, breathing life into his nostrils and then conversing with his creation, speaking to him. Chapter 2 is showing us something unique about God. And so it's not meant to be compared directly. What's the timing of all this? Chapter 1 does that. Chapter 2 is revealing to us more intimately how God did some of that in the narrative to show his intimacy with mankind. So what does it mean? I spent a lot of time this week. Like, tell me what it, okay, so we are created in the image of God, right? Like, this is one thing that, that it's saying. What makes mankind distinct from the rest of creation is that we were created in the image of God. Animals were created after their own kind. What does that mean? Like, tell me what it means. Give me something tangible. Is that because of, some would say, it's our morality, our sense of right and wrong is what distinguishes. That is a reflection of being created in the image of God. Is it because we can reason, we can think uh, with complexity? Is it because we're spiritual? Is, is there an aspect because we live forever and, and it's just more physical with the rest of creation? Is it our ability to relate to God? Is that what means we're 
created in the image of God? Is it our aesthetic and artistic sense? There's a lot of different ways, and I don't think any of those are are wrong. I just don't know that it's the main thing. Like, the more I've looked into this, I found most helpful a quote from pastor and author John Piper. This is how he answered that question. He said, the simplest thing, the, the plainest thing, and in fact, the, for me, the most practical thing in the way it has affected my life is to say images are created to image. Now, what does that mean? If you create an image, if, if you make a sculpture of someone, you do it to display something about that someone. You put it in a square in the middle of a town, and you want people to look at it, to notice it, to think about that person. You want them to think something about that person, that that they were noble, that they were strong, that they were wise, that they were something. Now, what would it mean if you created seven billion statues of yourself and placed them all over the world? God created us in his image so that we would display and reflect, communicate his goodness, his greatness to all creation. Fundamentally, I think that's what it means to be created in the image of God. That you were distinctly created to reflect the one who created you. There's a a value there, and there is a purpose and responsibility there. There is a value because God chooses to communicate with those who bear his image. Look at verse 28, and God blessed them, those that, that he created, and said to them, didn't say about them. It means that, that there is a uniqueness in creation to commune, to converse with the God who created everything, to hear his voice, that as image bearers of the creator, of God, we can hear and respond to his word, unlike the rest of creation, that as image bearers, you are called to be rulers kings and queens, royalty of God's creation. That's how it describes it when you look at rule the fish of the air and the birds of the sky and every living creature. I have given you every seed-bearing plant. There is this sense that mankind has been placed to rule over God's creation, not just part of God's creation, but to rule over it as his representatives. The psalmist in Psalm 8 thought of this in wonder, just fathoming this reality. He, he wrote this, when I observe the heavens, when I look up at the heavens in the sky at night, the work of your fingers, the, the moon and the stars, which, which you put in place, what, what is a human being that you would be mindful of him? A, a son of man that that you look after him. And yet, it continues, you made mankind a little less than God and crowned him with glory and honor 
You made him ruler over the works of your hands, and you put everything under his feet. Do you see the value that's given to to mankind to us as image bearers to reflect him is to hear his voice, to, to rule and have dominion, to reflect his reputation. We are created as visual representatives of the living God to all his creation. The thought that came to mind is, and I think I've shared this before, is I remember when I was growing up, my dad would always impress on me both the privilege and the responsibility that came with being a McKinsey. Like he would say, look, our family name has a reputation in this town that comes from him and and grandparents and uncles. It means something. There's an There's an honor and a respect that your name carries. And when you go out into the world, you not only represent yourself, you represent the family. And so live in a way that reflects what's true of that name. I think that same thing is true for us as Christians, isn't it? We are image bearers of God. When we go out into the world, you don't just represent yourself. You are representing the living God who created everything. We bear a value simply because we were created by God in his image to reflect his glory to the world. And when we go out into the world, that is both a privilege and a value, and it is also a responsibility in how we live and treat others. There's implications that come. And and this is what I want to impress on us, that there are implications that come because of the Omagu Dei, because we bear the image of God. There are certain things that the scripture makes explicit, and there are things that it makes implicitly. See, it says that, that why is murder wrong? It says, thou shall not kill. Is that just a, a random morality? Is this just a random essence of why does human life have value? But we see in Genesis 9, even after the fall, even after the flood, which we're going to get into, God reconfirms that people are created in God's image. Sin has not taken away the reality that we are created in his image. And, And God says in Genesis 9 later, if someone murders a fellow human, I will require that person's life. For whoever sheds human blood, by humans his blood will be shed. For God made humans in his image. Do you see that the reason here? The reason why murder is wrong is because that other person is created in the image of God. They have an inherent value. Now, James talks about this later on in the New Testament. He's like, look, we bless God with our tongue, and then we turn around and we curse somebody with that same tongue. But this should not be so, brothers and sisters, because that person was created in the image of God. Do you see? I want us to see that there are implications to the reality of how we treat other people because we're seeing them not just for their actions, not just through our anger, not just through our frustration, but we're seeing them as having been created in the image of God. Even as sinners, we still bear 
that identity, that value. If you were to ask me, what do I believe about abortion? I would start here. The reason I believe abortion is wrong is because all people are created in the image of God. That the intentional destruction of a living image bearer of God for our own convenience is not right. I would start here. Why is racism wrong? I would start here. The Imago Dei. Racism undermines the clear teaching that all people are created in the image of God. Whether we create divisions by gender or race or nationality or background or any other distinguishing characteristics that we might use to divide people, ultimately, we are all have an inherent value because we are created in the image of God. And so I would start here. This is why I think this is so important. It's such an essential doctrine for us to to understand. Like, why am I so heartbroken by today's culture and past cultures that seek, that call people to place their identity in their sexuality, to place their identity in grades or accomplishments? Why why am I heartbroken to see when when people would rather have a flag hanging over to define their identity rather than the truth that they are created in the image of God? Like, it's, it's heartbreaking. And we see the destructive effects because go back to, to, to that psychology today. If you press too deep, it's only going to leave you feeling more empty and more broken. And we see that reality. Suicide rates are up. We seek to find our identity in anything. Internal. Is it self-esteem? Is it in something else? And it only leaves us feeling more empty. And rather than judgment, what if this led us to compassion, that there is a value to mankind, that you have an inherent value because there is a creator who made you in his image. And you have a purpose and you have responsibility and you have a purpose in life. That the hope-filled truth of being created in the image of God is desperately, desperately needed in our culture. Not just saying you can do it because you think you can do it. Not just because it comes from within, but because God in his grace and mercy has given you value by simply making you. There is value in your life. There is purpose in your life. But we all realize we've fallen short of that, right? I pray that there's a reality there. Like, that's true. I know I haven't lived up to it. I know I haven't always represented him well. So what about my failures? I want us to see that Jesus is the full and perfect image of God. And what that means and what happens today. Next week, we're going to be looking more fully into what happened to bring sin and brokenness into the world and the impact that has had. But it does bear the question, do we still 
bear the image of God as sinners. Right? As people who have fallen short, as people who have messed up, as people that when you look in the mirror and you see your faults and you see your failures, do you still in this state bear his image? And the resounding answer of scripture is yes. Because of what I referred to back in Genesis 9, that after the fall, when the world had turned evil in rebellion and God wiped everyone out except for Noah's family, he restated this truth and purpose, saying, people are created in my image. Be fruitful and multiply. That purpose and responsibility was restated after the fall. And so we know that, that it's still there. It's marred. It's kind of like if you take a, a statue, right? This beautiful marble statue, and then you spray paint it with graffiti. You, you throw it in pig slop. You, you dress it in the, the worst of clothes. And it resembles nothing like what it was intended to resemble. Fundamentally, it is still in the image of God. Beneath all of that, it's marred. This is why in some of the language we see in the New Testament in in Romans 3:23 for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. How have we fallen short? Our purpose in how we were created and who we were created to be was to reflect his glory, but we all have decided to reflect our own. Right? We have fallen short of the purpose for which we were created. And the thing is, it's not to look at others in judgment. It's not to say, look at how terrible they are, but look at God's grace and the sweetness of that in my own life. Who in my sin and in my failure and in my brokenness and in my own ways that I have fallen short, God's grace remains. And I want us to see what is happening in the life of the believer today because of Christ. You were once marred by the power, presence, and penalty of sin. But as Christians who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, something is changing. Jesus is the perfect and complete image of God. I want us to start there. We have fallen short. Colossians 1.15 says, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. We talked about this last week. Jesus has always been in the beginning. John 1.1 was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He is before all things. He is by nature God. Jesus was not created in the image of God like you and I are. Jesus is the image of God. And he took on humanity, being the perfect representative of God among men. Hebrews 1.3 says that the Son is the radiance, the radiance of God's glory, the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That is who Christ is, who 
is the perfect image of God because he is God who was clothed in humanity and in his humanity and divinity. He laid down his life voluntarily to die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins of how we have fallen short of what we were created to be. That is is what happened. That is who Christ is and what he's done. And that then gives us hope. When we think about what it says in Romans 8.29, for those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Do you see that? What's happening, what's being restored in you and I by faith is restored to the image of Christ. In Colossians 3, 9 and 10, you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. You are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your creator. This is what I want us to see, that in faith today, if you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the process of transformation is ultimately a process of restoration to who God has always called you to be, of who God intended you to be. We've messed it up, but God in his grace and mercy pursued us, laying down his life to redeem, to buy back, to transform us by conforming us into the image of Christ. Exactly what we were created to be. Here's what I pray in closing that you take away from this. Remember that thesis statement at the beginning. Being created in the image of God imputes distinct value and responsibility to all mankind. That's what I hope you see, that that there is a distinction to mankind different than the rest of creation, that there is an inherent value because we are created in the image of God. And there's also a responsibility that comes with that to reflect His glory. But let me ask you this question. What do you see when you look in the mirror? Right? Like, what story do you tell yourself? What narrative plays in your mind? The world makes mankind out to be a virus, an accident. It's the problem. It's unintentional. And then we define our value based on our performance and our accomplishments. And we can look at ourselves in the mirror. And we can have that dialogue. I feel that condemnation. Have you done enough? Are you good enough? Are you the kind of man you want to be? Is that really who you want to be? Or I can look in the mirror and I can hear the biblical truth that I'm created in God's image. And I have fallen short. I have messed up. I have not perfectly reflected 
God in all his glory and worth. But I'm also forgiven. And my value hasn't changed. My identity hasn't changed. And I've tasted the sweetness of his grace. And I'm probably worse than many of you think. And I'm better than many assume. And so I can be honest in my failures. And I can be hopeful in my future. Because of who Christ is. And I can see myself more realistically when I realize that I am called to behold my Creator and to reflect His beauty to the world. What determines a person's value to you? Like, I think this is one of the takeaways to somebody else. What, what makes them valuable to you? What means a success for your children? Are we just teaching them self-esteem and it's all from within and they can be whatever they want to be? Or are we teaching them they have value? Because of who they are as created in God's image. And whether they succeed or fail, that value does not change. Why does somebody else have value more or less? Like I'm having to like rethink about the way I get, I know I keep saying it, but I do get frustrated when I drive. Like (laughs) when it says like, not that I'm cursing them, but I don't say nice things about some people when I'm driving. Like, but what does it mean to see people who frustrate you? in the image of God, that they're not just what they do. They have an inherent value because of who they are. What if, what if people were affirmed in that? And and last question, who or what do you reflect? Who or what do you reflect? When you go out into the world, you represent something. We wear brands on our t-shirts, on our, on our hats. We represent brands and we represent companies and, and we represent all sorts of things. But fundamentally, do we reflect the one who created us? Because that's our purpose. That is why Your life has value and meaning and purpose. You reflect, for good or bad, the name that you claim in Jesus Christ. Your actions reflect this. Your words reflect this. Your silence reflects this. Do our lives accurately reflect the truth of who God is? And when it doesn't, We ask forgiveness and we trust in Christ who is continuing to conform us into the image of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your grace and mercy. Lord, even in in standing up here, there is a weight and a responsibility that is felt in being created in your image. One in which I know I have fallen well, well, well short of. 
And yet, Lord, there's a sweet mercy that you give. Forgiveness, restoration, that we are being conformed into your image. That you haven't given up on us. You haven't left us to just wallow in our own misery. But Lord, to the, the costly reality that Christ would die on the cross for our sins, to pay the penalty for my wrongs, to cover me in his righteousness, to restore according to your purposes, Lord. What can we say but thank you? What can we do but to lay down our lives and worship, Lord? Lord, I feel the weakness of my own words and I pray that the reality of these truths would speak to the hearts this morning, Lord, by the power of your Spirit. Lord, where people feel worthless, where people feel empty, where people can only see their failures, Lord, I pray that there would be a reality of the distinct value that you have placed in each and every person here. And there is a distinct calling and purpose and responsibility that you have placed before them to reflect your name and your reputation to the world. Lord, would, would you do your work by the power of your spirit? And in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.